Well, again, I appreciate uh, being able to study these things with you. Uh, it's, it's always helpful to me, as many times as I go over this stuff, to, to do it again and, and to uh, even think of some new things that maybe I hadn't thought of before and uh, try, to, try to hone my own thinking down even further uh, with these, these particular questions. Uh, I wanted to uh, use instrumental music as kind of a case study talking about issues uh, of authority and uh, try, to, try to offer uh, some, a, a way to think about this that I hope will, will be beneficial to you because by the time we're done, I, you know, I don't want you to think, oh no, something else we can't do. Um, I want you to have a different thought, and I'll, I'll get to that as we get there, but, uh, and uh, I, th I think we can do that. Uh, Hebrews 9 and verse 1 says that even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now, I hope we understand that, that our purpose of God, the purpose of God's people, both uh, collectively and individually, is to glorify God. As 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And the congregation assembles together to offer praise and worship to God. And of course, our concern is always that we offer up acceptable sacrifices to God. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. And uh, worship, of course, has long been prone to abuse. Uh, and one of the primary questions we ask here is, who regulates worship? Is worship something that is ours to regulate, or is it something that is God's uh, to regulate? And uh, the real concern ought never to be what pleases me, but what pleases God. We saw uh, the attitude of following the example of Jesus, of always striving to please God. So even in our worship, it's not what sounds good to me, what looks good to me. It's always what is going to please God. Uh, we're talking primarily here in this lesson about uh, what we do uh, as a congregation in a public worship of the people of God. Um, and, and that, I think, instrumental music continues to be one of the most emotionally charged uh, issues even of today. Uh, and some will argue that uh, it just doesn't matter, and then some will charge those who oppose instruments in worship as being legalists or whatever term they want to use. Uh, emotions can run high on, on both sides of that. But I do think it's fair that, uh, you know, if, if people are going to come into one of our assemblies here and, and realize that, hey, you don't have a piano or whatever, uh, they might assume, well, it's just because you don't have the money for it or, or whatever. But I do think it's important that we can explain this is why. Uh, let's give an explanation uh, for that. Whether, you, whether they agree or disagree isn't really the issue. It's, it's we need to be able to explain why we do or why we don't do uh, certain things. I also want you to notice that this is not just a uh, Church of Christ issue. I think sometimes it's kind of categorized as if that's the Church of Christ kind of thing. It's really not just that. In fact, in an interesting book called Old Light, on New Worship by John Price. Uh, he was a, he's a Baptist pastor uh, who opposes instruments in uh, worship, and, and some of the arguments that I'm going to make reflect some of what he wrote. But here's what he said about that. He says, a no instrument position 
will surely seem radical to most modern Christians. We have become so accustomed to the use of instruments in church that we simply assume they should be there. We cannot possibly imagine anything else. Many in our generation will dismiss a no-instrument position as extreme and austere and rigid. And uh, again, he's, he's writing from uh, more of a Baptist perspective uh, there. And he says that those who say such things must place these very same labels on the greater part of the Christian church. When one looks back over the history of the church, it is not the no-instrument position that is surprising, but the fact that so many of us have willingly accepted the use of instruments in our own generation. Um, and he's making the argument that in history, that just was something that they didn't do. And uh, he documents uh, that very well, I think. Um, so I want to just kind of start by, by overviewing some of the basic arguments that are you know, fairly typical. And um, you know, we'll uh, then kind of move on from there. But um, I think the, the first is simply the, the idea that there's just no warrant uh, for instrumental music in the New Testament. Um, uh, and, and that's especially the case uh, when you look at the contrast between the Old and the New. And we're going to come back to this to show some of the specifics in the Old Testament. Uh, but the point here is, is not simply that the New Testament is silent about instruments, uh, but that, as some have described it, there is a wall of silence. It, it's, it is so specific, so specified in the old, and you get to the new and nothing. And uh, that, that wall, that contrast, I, I think, does warrant our paying attention to that and asking why would that be. Uh, is that purposeful? Uh, was it accidental? Did God intend for that to be that way? And if He did, does that say anything to us uh, about the nature of this issue? Uh, secondly, would simply be the history of it, uh, as uh, Price just mentioned there. Uh, historically, the evidence that early Christians used instrument uh, is, is just simply lacking. And uh, the documented use of instruments really doesn't occur till later, and it's within uh, a more of a Roman Catholic context. And even the uh, reformers like John Calvin uh, were solidly against uh, their use. And i uh, give you some uh, quotes here just to, to kind of set this in context. This comes from about 195 uh, A.D., Clement of Alexandria. The one instrument of peace, the word alone by which we honor God, is what we employ. We no longer employ the ancient psaltery and trumpet, timbrel and flute, and so on. So, uh, you know, we have early Christians testifying to the idea that, that they just didn't use uh, the instruments. Thomas Aquinas in uh, uh, the 13th century, recognizing that the church does not make use of instrument, musical instruments such as harps and psalteries and the divine praises for the fear of seeming to imitate the Jews, also wrote, as the philosopher says, teaching should not be accompanied with a flute or any artificial instrument such as the harp or anything else of this kind, but only with such things as make good hearers. For such like musical instruments move the soul to pleasure rather than create a good disposition within it. In the Old Testament, instruments of this description were employed both because the people were more coarse and carnal so that they needed to be aroused by such instruments as also by earthly promises but be, and because these material instruments were figures of something else. Uh, now, you might not agree with uh, his assessment of why the instruments were in the Old Testament, but it, it's still a documentation of the fact that they weren't using them. And uh, we are going to come back to that last statement uh, a little bit later. Uh, and then um, this comes from John Calvin 
uh, in the, one of the reformers in the 16th century, I have no doubt that playing upon cymbals, touching the harp and the viol and all that kind of music, which is so frequently mentioned in the Psalms, was a part of the education, that is to say, the pure instruction of the law. I speak of the stated service of the temple. For even now, if believers choose to cheer themselves with musical instruments, they should, I think, make it their object not to dissever their cheerfulness from the praises of God. But when they frequent their sacred assemblies, musical instruments and celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, the restoration of the other shadows of the law. The papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in their noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostle is far more pleasing to him. Uh, you'll find that uh, someone like John Calvin was much more blunt uh, about this than most of us are willing to be even. Uh, he, here's what he said in his... Uh, uh, further, he says, uh, does, does any one object that music is very useful for awakening the minds of men and moving their hearts? I own it. But we should always take care that no corruption creep in, which might both defile the pure worship of God and involve men in superstition. Moreover, since the Holy Spirit expressly warns us of this danger by the mouth of Paul, to proceed beyond what we are there warranted by him is not only, I must say, un unadvised zeal, but wicked and perverse obstinacy. Uh, so again, he was very staunch uh, in his opposition uh, to instruments, and that's as late as the 16th uh, century. Uh, and then this comes from uh, Charles Spurgeon, that well-known uh, preacher of the 19th century. Uh, when in a foreign land, amid the idolatries of popery, we have felt just the same homesickness for the house of the Lord, which is here described. We have said, Ziona, Ziona, our holy and beautiful house, when shall I see thee again? Thou church of the living God, my mother, my home, when shall I hear thy psalms and holy prayers? And once again, behold the Lord in the midst of the people. David appears to have had a peculiarly tender remembrance of the singing of the pilgrims, and assuredly it is the most delightful part of worship and that which comes nearest to the adoration of heaven. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet, the refined niceties of a choir, the blowing off of the wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. Uh, so there's in the 19th century a uh, pretty blunt and stated uh, opposition to that as well. And so my point is uh, here that historically, again, whether you agree or disagree with those statements, I don't think we can argue with the fact that historically it just wasn't used really until relatively recently. Uh, and it, that's historically. We've last few hundred years, but we're talking about a 2,000-year uh, time frame here. Uh, furthermore, we might uh, consider the fact that in the synagogue model, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, wasn't the church uh, patterned after the synagogue model? And uh, since the Jews used instruments, uh, therefore wouldn't the Christians have used uh, those instruments? But what we're missing with this is the fact that uh, the synagogues did not use instruments uh, in their uh, worship. And that sometimes is, is a missed point. Um, this comes from Jewish rabbi David Auerbach, who actually himself defends instruments if they enhance the mitzvah of public worship. So he's, he's a little more on the, what they would call the liberal end of, of things. But he still writes, There are those who claim that musical instruments should not be used in the synagogue service because it is an imitation of Gentile, non-Jewish practice. In early, years, in early years, the church also prohibited instrumental music because it was considered secular and might lead to licentiousness, the Syrian, Jacobite, and Nestorian churches still prohibit 
instrumental music. Uh, now, he recognized that in the synagogues they, they did not use it. I used to take a, a class on world religions over to a conservative Jewish synagogue in Tampa, and uh, they did not have instruments in their uh, sanctuary. And I like to have the rabbi himself explain to, to the class why that's the case. We would ask him that question, why don't you have instruments in here? And his answer was consistent with what I've seen in many places, and that is simply that instruments were reserved for the temple. And uh, outside of the temple context, they did not feel free to use those instruments. And again, we'll, we'll come back to that. And uh, finally, it's just the fact that, you know, uh, instrumental music has a history of division, and I do think we have to at least pay some attention to that. Um, you know, when instruments were introduced uh, slowly into various churches, invariably it caused uh, problems and uh, divisiveness. And, and when you have something like that that is simply unnecessary to begin with, uh, I think we have to pay some attention to that. All right, so I want to come back then to uh, instruments under uh, the old uh, law, instruments under the old uh, covenant, and, uh, which, which is a temple and prophetic kind of a context. Um, and, and I think it's important that we understand that. You know, Price, uh, in his book, points out, his argumentation is that the Old, temp Old Testament temple worship and all of its uh, outward ceremonies and rituals have been abolished. And that for the worship of the church, we must look to Christ and His apostles to establish God's will for Christians on this matter. And here's his language. With no command, example, or any indication whatsoever, unquote. That's his language. With no command, example, or any indication whatsoever that the Lord desires instrumental music in public worship, we have no warrant for their use. Now, that's his, his basic uh, argument. But here's what I want us to see about this, is that God was not silent about instruments in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, their use was not presumptuous. I think sometimes people kind of have that idea that David just invented instruments and then God put his rubber stamp on it, you know, after the fact. But that's really not the way it's presented in the Scriptures at all. Uh, remember, as Hebrews 9.1 says, there were regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And uh, the instruments were part of those regulations. And, uh, you know, we could look through and, and see, you know, Moses was given specific instructions about using trumpets uh, in Numbers 10 as they would summon the people to the tabernacle or they would, you know, summon people to war, uh, various uses like that. But instruments were commanded during the time of David in preparation for the, the temple. So as the tabernacle was still being used, but as David was preparing uh, for temple, uh, the temple itself to be built, which would be built by Solomon, uh, the instruments were, in fact, uh, commanded at that particular point. And I think what we'll find is that uh, God was so specific about that, uh, what the instruments were, who would play them? In fact, there was a specific family of the Levites who would play the instruments. It wasn't just anybody who had talent. Never was there in the temple worship a call for, hey, if you can play, uh, come join us in our band or something. There's never anything like that. It was God saying, here's what I want played. Here's who's going to play it. You know, here's what it's going to be made of. Here's when it's going to happen. And so God was very particular uh, about that. 
so that the use of instruments was not a matter of self-appointed talent nor desire that they expected God to rubber stamp, but rather it was an issue of God's authority. And this is what you see in 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 25, and this is actually talking about during the uh, restoration of Hezekiah, Hezekiah bringing back the temple and getting it back to the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but 2 Chronicles 29:25 says specifically that the command was from the Lord through His prophets. David appointed singers and musicians as directed by God according to the details of the pattern, it says, that was given him. 1 Chronicles 16, 1 through 6, 1 Chronicles 23, 1 Chronicles 28. You read through those chapters and you see God is very clearly spelling out what He wants with that. And then we note how the pattern for the temple was followed in... Uh, you know, I'll just put some verses up here uh, that I just mentioned. But in, in 1 Chronicles 28, 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 11, David gave to his son the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for, for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God, the storehouses of the dedicated things, for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the utensils in the service of the house of the Lord. All this, said David, uh, the Lord made me understand in writing by His hand upon me all the details of this pattern. Everything that he's doing here, uh, the, the organization of the, of the Levites and priests, the, uh, the, the musical instruments, the utensils of the temple, everything, God says, God, God has given me this pattern. And again, in 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 25, this is uh, during the days of Hezekiah's Reformation efforts. I want to read a little bit more of that context. 2 Chronicles 29, 25, Then he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets, and Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And of course, Hezekiah is praised for doing all of this because he's getting it back to the way it's... But this is a true restoration effort, but it went back to the command of David, which is said, again, specifically was the command of the Lord. And this, so, so it wasn't just an arbitrary decision made by David. I like this, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, and if we follow through in the Old Testament, what we're going to find, and I don't have time to read all these passages, but I just want you to see this. Solomon follows that pattern, 2 Chronicles 5, uh, 11 through 13. Jehoiada follows that pattern in 2 Chronicles 23 and verse 18. We've already seen where uh, Hezekiah uh, follows that, that pattern. And, and again, contextually, playing the instruments in, in uh, Hezekiah's reforms worked in connection with the burnt offerings. And again, all of this was to reestablish what God had first ordered uh, David. Josiah follows the pattern in 2 Chronicles 35 
and uh, verse 4, and, and it says specifically, it was according to the writing of David and according to the command of David. That pattern is followed in the days of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And uh, the reforms of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 12 and verse 24 says, As prescribed by David, the man of God. Uh, Nehemiah 12, 35, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Uh, again, and uh, then in verses 45 and 46, they perform the worship of their God and the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David. So the pattern is being followed very clearly uh, by these reformers, and, and uh, they're making sure that they're doing this according to what David had, had commanded because this was the command uh, of God. David was a prophet, and David spoke uh, the Word of God there. And then I, I would also note in the Old Testament the temple context of the Psalms that uh, follow that same basic pattern. I know sometimes the question arises, well, uh, what about uh, the Psalms? And Psalm 33 or Psalm 150 uh, talking about the, the musical instruments, doesn't that show that God wanted it? Well, yeah, it does show God wanted it, but it was in a temple context. That's the point. Even John Wesley uh, made this comment in his commentary on Psalms that these instruments were used in the public worship of God in the tabernacle. And so there's a context in which these things uh, are being done, and I think we have to recognize that, that uh, very clearly what God had in mind for these instruments was the temple context, that they would play them at the temple as the burnt offerings were being made, and all of this was done according to very specified instructions. So it was not an arbitrary thing. And that's what I mean when I say that this contrast between the old and the new, when uh, it's so specific, uh, it is so regulated in the Old Testament, we come to the new and it's just a, a wall of nothing. <laughs> uh, is that on purpose? I, I'm assuming it's on purpose because it's the Word of God. Um, now again... Um, well, that's a repeat, but I want to just say that uh, we have to understand that the very same arguments that you can make for the instruments, you can also make for animal sacrifices. I think we can, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, someone might say, for example, well, uh, you know, God doesn't specifically condemn instruments in the New Testament scriptures, uh, but neither does he specifically condemn animal sacrifices. Or animal sacrifices... Uh, were just an aid to worship in the Old Testament. No, they were an integral part of the worship of the Old Testament, and so were the instruments uh, back then. Or that animal sacrifices uh, uh, you know, were also performed and accepted according to the Word of God. Uh, so if we say, well, didn't God want instruments, and doesn't that show that He uh, likes them? Well, the same thing would be true of animal sacrifices. Or you might say, well, aren't, aren't uh, instruments in the Psalms? Well, so are animal sacrifices in the Psalms. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're both in conjunction, really, with one another, because the instruments were played with the burnt offerings. Uh, that, that's how God had them handled. And so, really, the very same arguments uh, can be used uh, there. And I, and I think it's important that we recognize that, because, you know, we might say, well, does that mean, then, that, that the sacrifices would, would be wrong in the New Testament? Um, I recognize that there is a, a transitional period from the time Christ died until the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, as the temple was still standing, but let's recognize that once the temple was down 
as of A.D. 70, those sacrifices ended. Those instruments ended. It was all done uh, by that point, and God clearly made a distinction. And when we look at the trajectory of what God intended for sacrifices, it was clearly to find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's the point, uh, was to bring them to Jesus Christ. And He is the ultimate sacrifice. And so uh, I, I, I don't see that the New Testament really has to specifically condemn it in order for us to recognize what God's intentions were to bring about the fulfillment of these things. And of course, again, that New Testament principle is to look to Christ and to the apostles to see what is acceptable uh, to God. And uh, I think it's, it's, that's really where authority uh, is. And, and uh, you, know, you look at, at the fact that many places in the New Testament demonstrate that we really are not to try to justify practices based on the law of Moses. Uh, we, we saw Hebrews 7, 12 through 14, the fact that there was a change in the law uh, because, uh, you know, God wanted to have Jesus be the high priest, so a law had to change. Uh, or Hebrews 8, 13, when He said a new covenant, He's made the first obsolete. Uh, or Hebrews 9, 8 through 10, the Holy Spirit signifies that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle was still standing, which is a symbol of the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, Indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory, because the glory that surpasses it. Uh, for that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is with glory. So in other words, Christ has displaced all of that. And uh, what I like to do is just show, uh, and again, there's, there's so much to, to talk about here, but for time's sake, uh, my, my real argument here is what I would just call the argument from fulfillment. And that the, the fact is simply this. We don't play instruments because we are the instruments. And... Uh, I think when we stop and think about why that is the case, you think about Jesus Christ, again, being the fulfillment of all of this. He fulfills the image of God perfectly, Hebrews 1 and verse 3. He fulfills the exodus by being the greatest exodus of all, out of the slavery of sin. Um, he is the prophet like Moses. He is the lawgiver. He fulfills the Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He fulfills the role of of the great high priest. He fulfills the Davidic promise of the king uh, who built the house of God in, in the greatest of all senses. He fulfills the tabernacle temple concept. Uh, in John 1 and verse 14 uh, says, you know, he, that he became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. And that word dwelled is the word for tented or tabernacled among us. He is, the, he is the new temple. And I think John 2 uh, demonstrates that uh, in, in his uh, you know, casting out the money changers and so forth. Uh, he fulfills all sacrifices, really. And uh, he fulfills the seed promised to Abraham. On we could go to show how Jesus was the fulfillment of these things, but, but that doesn't stop with Jesus because his body fulfills essentially the same things. Uh, and specific aspects of what the law represented. For example, we are the completion of the nation promise. We're a special nation. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, 
and verse 9. We are the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood as a kingdom of priests. Revelation 1, again, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, we are a royal priesthood. Uh, we are with Christ the fulfillment of the temple. And uh, so 1 Corinthians 3.16, I would also point you to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the end of that chapter, which again specifically refers to God's people as the temple uh, of God today. So we are the temple. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that God doesn't have a temple. It's that the people are the temple. And uh, we are, in fact, the, the royal priesthood. Again, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, it's not that God doesn't have a priesthood today. It's that all of God's people comprise a royal priesthood. And so we are the priests, and uh, we are the sacrifices. Uh, we said, well, why aren't we offering animal sacrifices? Because Christ was our ultimate sacrifice, but we are the sacrifices to God. Romans 12 uh, makes that point that um, we are to offer up ourselves uh, holy sacrifices acceptable to God, uh, which is your spiritual service, uh, reasonable service. Uh, 1 Peter 2 and verse 5 talks about uh, there being built up uh, we are living stones being built up in this spiritual house, offering up acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews 13 talks about uh, offering up the sacrifice of praise with our lips uh, to God. We are the sacrifices of God. And, and my point is simply that what we're looking at here is uh, a total uh, picture. Uh, that, that God had in mind a, a, a picture of the temple with the priesthood and the sacrifices and the, the various things that are happening. I mean, uh, Revelation even talks about prayers being incense that goes up uh, before God. And my point is simply that we are the instruments of praise. And I think passages like Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16 make that point, uh, that we psalm with our hearts to the Lord. Uh, that God does specify the nature of the instrument that we're talking about right here. And, uh, you know, God wants us to, to be that. And, and the reason why this is important, I think, is because we have to recognize that, uh, like I said at, at the beginning, I don't want you to walk out of here saying, oh, look what we can't do. I want you to walk out of here and say, praise God for who we are. We're the instruments of praise. And that ought to change the way that we approach God in our worship, that we recognize that that we are instruments to praise Him specifically. And uh, we're offering up sacrifices as God's holy priesthood in the temple of God. And uh, it's just a beautiful picture of God's people. But we need to understand that all of those things were shadows. They were shadows of the past. And God has brought them forward to the substance of God's people. And uh, when we start saying, well, we want to go back and do... We're, what we're saying is we want to go back to the shadows. And, and I, don't, I don't see how that's warranted uh, in a New Testament understanding of things. But again, I'm not the only one who's uh, ever thought of this. Uh, Origen, in the 2nd, 3rd centuries, said this about John 4.24. Now, John 4.24 says we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the interesting thing about that... I believe, is that Jesus in that context, He's not just saying that you need to have the right attitude and truth, although that has always been the case. Uh, he's, in, he's contrasting that with the worship that was taking place at Jerusalem. And Jerusalem stood for everything that God's people were all about. This is the city where God set His name. 
to say that it's no longer going to be in Jerusalem, but what God's really looking for are those who worship really in the spiritual reality of what Jerusalem and the temple and all of that represented in the shadows. We're the new Jerusalem. We're the new temple, the new priesthood, the sacrifices and the instruments and so forth. So we're, we're the fulfillment of the shadows of what that represented. Origen said, we too aspire to know how God is spirit as the sun reveals it and to worship God in the spirit that gives life and not in the letter that kills. We want to honor God in truth and no longer in types, shadows and examples, even as the angels do not serve God in examples in the shadow of the heavenly realities, but in realities that belong to the spiritual and heavenly order. And uh, as we saw the end of that quote from Aquinas, you know, these material instruments were figures of something else. Well, they were figures of us. That's the point. They were figures of us. And uh, this is John Chrysostom in his homily on Psalm 41, and this is in the 4th century AD. David formerly sang songs, also today we sing hymns. He had a lyre with lifeless strings, and the church has a lyre with living strings. Our tongues are the strings of the lyre with a different tone indeed, but much more in accordance with piety. Here, there is no need for the cithara or the stretch strings or for the plectrum or for art or for any instrument. But if you like, you may yourself become a cithara, mortifying the members of the flesh and making a full harmony of mind and body. For when the flesh no longer lusts against the spirit, but has submitted to its orders and has been led at length into the best and most admirable path, then you will create a spiritual melody. And so again, they, they saw, early writers saw that, that that's really what this uh, was all about. And so I think it's important that we uh, recognize uh, that as, as a way of looking at this. And, and uh, to me, it, it has really kind of renovated, in my mind, the way I think about the whole thing. Because it's not just an, an argument that says, well, it's not in the New Testament, therefore we can't do this. Uh, it's really an argument that says we've got to look at the types and the shadows and, and what God intentioned to be brought forward for His people under the New Covenant. And I think it's a, it's a deeper sense of what we really are and who we really are uh, as the people of God. So I would uh, submit that uh, to, to your thinking uh, this morning.